and begin in chapter 19, verse 1. Joab, the leader of David's army, was told the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning because on that day the troops heard it said the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal into our shame when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Joab went into the house to the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you. You hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left to you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. So the king got up, took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites, the northern tribes, fled to their homes. We pick up the story in verse 9 of David's return. And he is met out at the Jordan River on his return. Remember, he went out east as Jesus went out east. And he's going to be coming back from the east. And he's crossing the Jordan. He's met at the Jordan by three interesting people. Shimei, son of Gerah by Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, and then by a man named Barzillai, who was instrumental in serving the king while he was away. We'll come back at some point and read a bunch of those things. But there was a dispute that broke out between the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah as to who would bring the king back. There was a dilemma. The northern tribes had rebelled against David. Now Absalom, who they had followed, is dead. And now what do we do? David's the king again. So they're going back and forth on who should be a part in bringing the king back. Well, basically, Judah led the way. And Israel in the north was upset about that, feeling they had no part with David. So when you get to chapter 20, a guy by the name of Sheba leads a rebellion. Now, a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet, and he shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. We're going to see how that rebellion plays out and how it's quelled. When you get to chapter 21, we find out there is a famine in the land for three years. God uses that to cause David to seek God's face. And he finds out that there's a famine in the land because... Saul had decimated a group of people called the Gibeonites, and there had been no atonement made for that sin. David makes that atonement. Saul's relatives are sacrificed. We'll learn the significance of that. And then he finds, we find that David takes the bones of Saul, Jonathan, and the men that were killed, buries them in, in uh, Geba of Saul, or Gibeon of Saul, where Saul's hometown was, and Peace is restored to the land. God now answers prayer on behalf of the land. More wars break out against the Philistines. Chapter 22 is David's song of praise. We won't have time to get into today. Defeat over all of his enemies. When you get to chapter 23, you learn of the mighty feats of his warriors. And uh, you get to chapter 23 and you see how God brings all of these things together in the Lord's return or in David's return, foreshadowing the return of of the Lord. So let's pray for a moment and we'll get into it.
Father, thank you for your word that is deeper than we know, endless in depth. We could come back to the same word a thousand times and you'll keep revealing more of who you are. We see you in the things that were happening in David's life. And I'm praying today, God, that as David returned to Jerusalem, it foreshadows the great day when one day you will return, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we thank you for all you'll show us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Returns are a very important part of our lives. For example, we're coming into a season where many of us are paying more careful attention to the return policies of a lot of places we're going. Investors put out hard-earned money or we place deposits in a bank hoping to get a good, what? Return. If you're a Star Wars fan, you remember in that series that just when it looked like the Jedi were destroyed, you get what? The movie called The Return of the Jedi. Moms and dads, boys and girls rejoice when a parent returns from a business trip, when a veteran returns from a deployment. Our family's been through both. People give cards and expressions declaring their desire for best wishes and many happy returns. You see, returns are a big part of our life. But of all the returns we'll ever hope for in life, none will be greater than the blessed hope and the glorious return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that return is foreshadowed in the events of David coming back from exile into Jerusalem. We are ending, or nearing the end, of our study entitled Regalia, The Rise of the Kingdom. And we've seen how God has sovereignly worked to give rise to King David and the promise that through David's line would come one who would reign on David's throne forever and ever. But when you get to 2 Samuel 15, the promise appears to be in jeopardy. David's son Absalom leads a conspiracy to oust his dad and to take over leadership of the kingdom. David and his family and many of his leading officials, they flee out of Jerusalem to spare their lives. And they settle in a town called Mahane. And by the time you get to chapter 19, David is in exile. His troops are out fighting his rebellious son Absalom and the Israelites who followed him. David gets word that Absalom is dead and his great victory becomes a time of mourning as David grieves the loss of his son. So his troops are slinking into Mahanaim as they feel betrayed by David's emotional response to the loss of his son. Joab, the leader of David's forces, sees the danger in this. Chapter 19, he goes to David and he says, David, look, it's very obvious today the troops and I mean nothing to you. We just won a great victory for you. You'd wish we were all dead and Absalom was still alive. You love those you hate and you hate those you love. Or you hate those who love you and you love whatever he said. Anyway, <laughs> and he said, if you don't get out there, if you don't get out there and face those troops, you're not going to have a man left. You're going to lose your whole army. And when you get to verse 8, the king got up, took his seat in the gateway, and the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway. They, they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites, the northerners, are fleeing to their homes. There's confusion and division among the tribes of Israel as to what they should do now. Remember, the northern tribes, the whole kingdom was once aligned with David, but when Absalom went on the rise, David fled and Israel aligned with Absalom. Now Absalom's dead. So now who do they stand with? And the argument came up between Israel and Judah, who's going to bring the king back? Why aren't you talking about this? We've got to work this out. 
David calls the men of Judah, his native tribe, to lead him back. And he points Amasa to be commander of his troops now instead of Joab. Maybe partly because of Joab's rebuke. As King David is returning with the people of Judah, with half the tribes of Israel, he is met at the Jordan River by those three significant people. The first is Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite. Remember? He was the guy that when David was leaving, he's a relative of Saul's, he was throwing rocks and casting dust on him and calling curses and telling him he was a murderer. Some of the troops wanted to kill him. David said, no, maybe God sent him to do this. Now, Shimei is going to be the first one to meet him as the king returns. Next is Mephibosheth, the Saul's grandson, who is lame in his feet. He shows up in mourning. His beard isn't trimmed. His clothes are dirty. He's been in mourning while the king is away. And David asked him, Mephibosheth, why didn't you go with us? And he said, I wanted to go, but I'm lame. And my servant Ziba deceived me. He took my donkey and went out to you and lied about me and slandered me. So you thought I was against you, but I wasn't. And David's got a dilemma. Now Ziba the servant says, Mephibosheth was the problem. Now Mephibosheth said Ziba was the problem. And David's got to figure out who's telling the truth. And then we also meet a guy named Barzillai. A stunning character in this whole narrative. An 80-year-old man from Rogelim who was very wealthy. And he had provided for David and served him and taken care of him. And been faithful to him while David was away. Now David invites Barzillai to go with him to Jerusalem. Come and live in my house, and I'll take care of you. Barzillai says, I can't go. I'm too old. The journey's too long. I can't enjoy the pleasures of the household anyway, but I want to accept your offer, so take my servant, maybe his son, Kimham. Let him go in my place to go and live in your house. And so Kimham comes across. Soon the Israelites are coming to the king and are are upset that the men of Judah brought David across the Jordan before they were there to help. The men of Judah respond, we're the king's own tribe. The Israelites said, well, we have 10 tribes. Judah prevails. The Israelites feel disenfranchised. And so Sheba leads the rebellion in chapter 20. David gets to Jerusalem. He summons Amasa, the new head of his troops, to meet him with the men in three days because he has a mission to send them after Sheba. Amasa doesn't show up. So David thinks maybe he's bolted too. So he goes to Abishai, Joab's older brother, and he said, look, I want you to take Joab's troops and I want you to go out after this guy Sheba. He's leading a rebellion. It's going to be a mess. We've got to deal with it. Justice needs to be served. Amasa shows up at Gibeon while Abishai and Joab show up at Gibeon, and Amasa, the new leader of the troops who was late in coming to the assignment, doesn't realize he's an outcast or a suspect. Joab, apparently a bit jealous over Amasa's new role, pulls him aside and murders him, and it's a cold-blooded murder. Joab now takes over leadership of the troops again. They go after the rebel Sheba, they catch him. He is walled in on a city. The people inside wanting to spare themselves kill Sheba, throw his head over the wall, and Joab goes back to Jerusalem. When you get to chapter 21, David's reign is restored. He's facing a three-year famine. He finds out it's because of Saul's sin against the Gibeonites. Atonement has to be made. So seven descendants of Saul are killed. 
Later, David brings their bones and, John, and uh, Jonathan and Saul's bones back to be buried, and peace is restored. God answers prayer again. Chapter, war breaks out again in chapter 21 between the Philistines. You see all the, the victories of David. Chapter 22 is the words of David's song he sang and praised to God when all of his enemies were defeated. In chapter 23, the last words of David, it's called. Not in the sense that the last words he ever spoke, but like his last will and testament as he affirms the covenant with God, that there will be someone who sits on his throne forever and ever. And chapter 23 ends with a list of all David's mighty warriors and some of the amazing battles and victories they won against overwhelming odds, demonstrating the power of God that was with those who were faithful to the king. So when you get to this section of 2 Samuel, David is back in Jerusalem. His enemies are defeated. He is seated on his throne and has begun to reign. One king and one kingdom. The king has returned. And we can be confident that just like David, Jesus will return to reign as well. And there will be one king over one kingdom. How will Jesus return? It will be a lot like David. Jesus will return to reign in grace and truth. And like David, he will return to reign with justice and righteousness. Like David, Jesus will one day return to reign in grace and truth. When you pick up the story in chapter 19, it says this in verse 14. He went over the hearts of the men of Judah, David did, so that they were all of one mind. They sent word to the king, return you and all your men. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. Now the men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king and bring him across the Jordan. Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household. That was Mephibosheth's servant. And his 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed to the Jordan where the king was. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and to do whatever he wished. When Shimei, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind, for I, your servant, know that I have sinned, but, to, but today I have come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my lord, the king. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said, shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the lord's anointed. And David replied, what does this have to do with you, sons of Zeruiah? What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that today I'm king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, you will not die. And the king promised him on oath. You know, I was reading a, a very interesting article the other day, which is taking on new uh, meaning for me. It was an article about how do you get 20-something medical students to understand what it's like to be old. In this article I was reading, it said, enter the age man suit. Now, if you're over 50, you'll appreciate this. This suit consists of ear protectors that stifle hearing, a yellow visor that blurs eyesight, makes it hard to distinguish colors, knee and elbow pads which stiffen the joints, a Kevlar jacket-style vest which presses uncomfortably against your chest, making it harder to breathe, padded gloves, the aged man suit which weighs around 22 and a half pounds has been custom-made to simulate the physical Consequences, consequences of old age. Aren't right, you looking forward to this? Now, 
Dr. Rahel Eckhart from Berlin, Germany helps strap the suit onto the med students as she tells them, welcome to the old, she says. My aim is to turn you young, energetic people into slow, creaking beings. I love how they look at older people. Anyway, they, that way, they will, I hope, develop a feeling for what it's like to be old. Eckhart argues that there is a huge disconnect between large sections of the medical profession and their elderly patients, as well as a desperate lack of doctors willing to go into geriatric medicine. Rather than a PowerPoint presentation, she said, this is the best way of giving them a real idea of what it's like to be old. And only once we have their empathy can we really begin to win students around to becoming interested in old people as patients. I didn't realize we were so tough. But anyway, <laughs> how do you get a group of 20-somethings to see what old age is like? You apparently put on this age suit and they have to experience it. They have to see it demonstrated. They have to know what it's like. How do you get a fractured nation used to betrayal and intrigue to see that a kingdom could be united under a king who is full of grace and truth? How do you convince them that that's possible? You bring them a king who operates in grace and truth. You let them see it. You let them experience it. You let them see what it looks like. This is what God demonstrated in David through the return of the king. It's demonstrated in the people that met him at the Jordan. The first was Shimei, son of Gerah. Remember what Shimei did when David left Jerusalem? Listen to this, 2 Samuel 16, verse 5. As King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul, one of his relatives, came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gerah, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You've come to ruin because you're a murderer, and he's throwing dirt on him and pelting him with rocks. Abishai, one of David's mighty men, says in verse 9, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. And look how David responds. Whoops, I lost my notes here. This is going to be a good day. This is a message about getting older. Anyway, 11, <laughs> 12. I lost page 13. There it is. 11, 12. If my grandsons were here, they'd be saying, Bampa, page 12 comes after page 11. That's right. That's what it does. Look how David responds. 2 Samuel 16. What does this have to do with you, sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me this covenant blessing instead of his curse today. You see, he sees the hand of God in it. He doesn't retaliate. Though he is wrongly accused, though he is falsely treated, though he is persecuted, he doesn't retaliate, he doesn't curse, he doesn't 
offend. He entrusts himself. He said, God is doing this. It's the will of God today. You know, there are so many parallels in the books of Samuel and the Kings and the Chronicles about Jesus' ministry on earth. So many that Phil and I can't possibly cover them all. But I want you to just see one in the details of why I love to read the scriptures and to see Christ on every page of the Old Testament. David is falsely accused. He is persecuted. He is cursed, and he doesn't retaliate. Do you remember what Peter said about Jesus when he was betrayed, when he was cursed, when he was reviled falsely? 1 Peter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The parallels between David and Jesus are amazing in the Old Testament. But now the king is returning, and Shimei is one of the first to greet him. And it tells us in chapter 19, verse 18, they crossed at the ford to take the king's house hold over and to do whatever he wished. When Shimei, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind, for I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I've come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my lord the king. When Abishai, look at Abishai again. Remember on the way out? Let me cut off that dead dog's head. Now look at him. When Abishai, son of Zariah, said, shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He's always trying to kill this guy. He's looking for his chance. He cursed the Lord's anointed. David said, what does this have to do with you, sons of Zariah? What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that today I am king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. The sinner confessing his sin, deserving of death, and appealing to the king's grace. People, this is what it is like for sinners today, for you and me, who are just as guilty as Shimei in sinning against the king. All of us have sinned and fall short of his glory. You and I or as guilty of sin against the king as anything Shimei had done. But King Jesus is full of grace to those who confess their sin and who humble themselves before him and appeal to his grace. Do you remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verse 1? These verses take on new meaning because this was me. Shimei was dead in his sin. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Shimei followed the wrong ruler. I used to follow the wrong ruler. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Shimei deserved that wrath, and so did I. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. David, how are you going to show a nation what grace looks like? We're going to take this guy that everybody saw cursing you and reviling you and accusing you and you're going to extend on his confession grace. And the people are going to see that grace. For it is by grace you have been saved, Paul said, through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. And by the way, speaking of grace, David was a recipient of that grace because, you see, he was a sinner too. And he had sinned against God, and he had appealed to God for grace. And he had been extended that grace. I am a sinner and so are you. But you who have trusted Christ have appealed to God for that grace and he's granted it to you. And now he's looking to you and me to pass that grace on to others, helping them to see the God of all grace. Jesus knew no sin, but he's been tempted in every way like we are and he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be human. That's why I love Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So then let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, just like Shimei did, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, if you've confessed your sin and appealed to God's grace for your forgiveness, you'll find that Jesus is full of grace. He is a king full of grace. And that's the grace you'll see face to face when he returns. But it was also, he came also, not just of grace, but also full of truth. Mephibosheth shows up, verse 24, Saul's grandson, went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, you know what? I, was, I wanted to, but I was lame. So I told my servant Ziba to saddle my donkey. Instead, he took my donkey and some other donkeys, loaded up my supplies, brought them to you and told you I was a rebellion against you, that I wasn't coming because now I saw the chance with you leaving of getting back the leadership of my grandfather's kingdom. But it was a lie. Ziba betrayed me. Now Ziba has come back and slandered me again. And David's with a dilemma. He's facing a dilemma. Who do I believe? Who is telling the truth? Because when Mephibosheth didn't show up on the exit, he gave all of the property to Ziba. Now Ziba comes back, and Mephibosheth said he didn't deserve that. He betrayed me. So now David's stuck. So what does he do? He says to Mephibosheth, then you go and divide the land with, with Ziba. And Mephibosheth responds, how? He says to him, verse 30, let him take everything now that my lord the king has returned home safely. Do you remember when Solomon was faced with a similar dilemma. 
two prostitutes, each had a child. During the night, one of them laid over and smothered their son. Only one child was left. The two prostitutes who lived together went to King Solomon. They both claimed that the baby was theirs. Solomon had a dilemma. Who's telling me the truth? So he tested their hearts. Remember what he did? He said, take the living child and a sword and cut the baby in half and give half to each woman. One of the women said, yes, if I can't have my child, no one will have him. Cut him in half. And the other said, don't do that. The baby is mine, but if I can't have him, I still want him to live. So don't, don't harm the child. Give, give him to the other woman. And Solomon said, now I know who's telling the truth. Give the baby to the lady who wants him to live. When Mephibosheth said, I don't want the land, David. You give it all to Ziba. I have what I wanted. I wanted you back. You've been better to me than I deserve. My whole grandfather's household deserved death, but you took me in and let me eat at your table. So I don't want the land. All I want is you, and you're safely home. And David said, now I know who's telling the truth. You see, the king was demonstrating that he's returning full of grace and full of truth, just like Jesus will. Jesus is not only the God of truth, he is truth itself. And when he returns, he will expose every lie and truth will prevail. Peter said everything will be laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do everything. Jesus said the things you have spoken in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. There will be no secrets. Everything will be laid bare. Truth will prevail in this kingdom. And grace and truth came together in the man named Barzillai. When you pick up his story in chapter 19, verse 31, Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rosalim, his hometown, when he heard that David was a Mahanaim. He was a very wealthy man. He was 80 years old. And he came down to faithfully serve the king while he was away, providing for him, serving him, taking care of the king's business. So when David was ready to cross over, he says to Barzillai, I want you to come and live in my house. I want to take care of you. You have served me faithfully while I've been away. I'm going back to Jerusalem. I'm going back to my house. I want you to come with me. Barzillai says, I can't do it. I'm too old. The trip's too far. I can't enjoy the pleasures anyway, but I understand the gracious offer, so would you take my servant, your servant, Kimham, maybe Barzillai's son, and let him be the recipient of the grace. In my stead, I'll be in your house through him. You know, when I read that story, I thought Jesus had made that same offer to me. To all of us who are faithfully serving him while he's away. Who are about the king's business while he's away. Being disciples. Who are living for the king and his kingdom. There's an invitation to come and live with him in the father's house. Do you remember in John 14, the night of the Last Supper, before Jesus goes to the cross? He tells the disciples he's leaving. He's going away. 
And they're very troubled. And Jesus says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. John 14, verse 1. You trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I'm going there now to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare that place, I'll come back to get you, and I'm going to take you to be where I am. Thomas spoke up and said, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus said, I'm the way. And the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Barzillai, I want you to come and live with me in my father's house, in my house. I want you to come and live with me because you've been faithful to serve me while I've been away. But now that I'm returning, I want you to come with me. That's the offer Jesus is extending to us who are his disciples, who are serving him while he's away, who are about the king's business, who are disciples reproducing the life of Christ and others. Jesus came the first time in the nativity, John said in John 1, full of grace and truth. He's going to come back the second time the same way, full of grace and truth. David returned, full of grace and truth, foreshadowing the coming of our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And not only to reign in grace and truth, but like David, Jesus will one day return to reign in justice and righteousness. In 2 Samuel 20, in verse 14, you find out what happened to Sheba who led the rebellion. Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel Beth Maacah and through the entire region of the Bichrites who gathered together and followed him. All the troops with Joab came and besieged Sheba and Abel Beth Maacah They've built a siege ramp up to the city and it stood against the outer fortifications. While they were battering the wall to bring it down, a wise woman called from the city. Listen, listen, tell Joab to come here so I can speak to him. He went toward her and she asked, Are you Joab? I am, he answered. She said, Listen to what your servant has to say. I'm listening, he said. She continued, Long ago they used to say, Get your answer at Abel. And that settled it. We are the peaceful and faithful in Israel. You're trying to destroy a city that's a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? Far be it from me, Joab replied. Far be it from me to swallow up or destroy. That's not the case. A man named Sheba, son of Bichri from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king, against David. Hand over this one man, and I'll withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, his head will be thrown to you from the wall. Then the woman went to all the people with her wise advice and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. So he sounded the trumpet and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home. And Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. When you get to chapter 21, there's a famine. As I mentioned, it was because of Saul's sin against the Gibeonites. Atonement needed to be made. Justice and righteousness needed to be done. And justice and righteousness was going to be seen to be done. You know, you and I are living in the day of the superhero resurgence. You know how fun it is to watch your grandkids rooting for Superman and Thor and Superwoman and the Avengers and the Justice League and all these guys you grew up with when you were a kid? These guys never die. They just get bigger and more powerful. They're popular because we all want to see justice done and the righteousness to prevail. 
My favorite when I was a kid was Superman. Not the wimpy Supermans of today, George Reeve, the real Superman, <laughs> in black and white. Because I remember as a kid, no matter how bad it got for Lois and Jimmy, Superman was going to show up. And when he showed up, everything was going to be set right. That's why we love superheroes. Well, David wasn't a superhero, but he was the king. And when he returned, he returned to reign in justice and righteousness. He meted out justice in Sheba's rebellion. When Sheba the Benjamite couldn't get away uh, with his rebellion, and he couldn't get his way with David back in, in reign, in power, he led a rebellion, and David saw the threat and sent the troops out to get Sheba and stop the rebellion. Joab and the troops finally catch up with him in Abel Beth Maaka, and there was no place for Sheba to hide. People, when God meets out his judgment, there is no place to hide. Justice was done. Evil was judged. The threat to the United Kingdom was vanquished. And now there was one king and one kingdom again. When Jesus returns, he will defeat Satan himself with a final blow. Justice will be done, evil will be judged, and all wrongs will be made right. The threat will be vanquished, and there will be one king and one kingdom. Justice will prevail. He also, David, acted in righteousness in atoning for the sin against the Gibeonites. The Gibeonite story is told in Joshua 9. You remember when Joshua and the Israelites were taking over the promised land, God had ordered them to destroy all the pagan nations. God said, you turn them over to me. They are mine. So you totally destroy them. I'll take responsibility for them. You just do as you are told. God is God and he is sovereign. When the Gibeonites heard that Joshua and the troops of Israel were wiping out the surrounding nations, they feared for their existence, obviously, and so they resorted to a ruse, Joshua 9, verse 3. And verse 4 says, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, we've come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. Well, to make a long story short, the Israelites got duped. The Gibeonites weren't from a long way away. They were next door. <laughs> They just didn't want to get wiped out. So they pretended to be from a far off land. Tells us in Joshua 9 verse 14, the Israelites sampled their provisions but did not inquire of the Lord. There's powerful lessons there too we don't have time to get into. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn on oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, we've given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. 
Now, there's no Old Testament record of exactly what happened when Saul invaded their town. But it does say that in his zeal for Israel and Judah, he was wiping out some of the surrounding nations. Maybe it was in his pursuit trying to find David. But whatever it was, Saul broke the covenant promise of God to the Gibeonites and he decimated them. That wrong sin brought consequences. And God used three years of famine in the land under David's rule to bring it to David's attention. So David inquires of the Lord, what's going on, God? Why the famine? And God said, it's because of the sin of Saul against the Gibeonites. It hasn't been atoned for. So David asks, how shall I make atonement? People, there is no atonement for sin without sacrifice. It has to be a sacrifice of like kind. The sin was Saul against the Gibeonites. Therefore, it had to be some of Saul's descendants who were sacrificed to make atonement for Saul's sin. And so seven of Saul's family members and descendants were chosen, and they were executed, their bodies left and exposed. David later gathers up their bones and the bones of Saul and Jonathan, heads back to Saul's hometown, buries them next to Saul's father, Kish. And it says in verse 14 of chapter 20, after that, excuse me, chapter 21, after that, God answered prayer on behalf of the land. Justice was done, atonement was made, righteousness reigned. 300 years after David's death, God spoke of the kind of reign great David's greater son Jesus would have. It would be a reign of justice and righteousness. Do you remember in Isaiah 9, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. People, have you grown tired of all the wrong and all the injustice in the world? Jesus is saying, you just wait. If you are like Lot in the days of Abraham, tormented by the wickedness and righteousness he saw people getting away with in the world around him, Jesus would tell you, you just wait. If you see a world full of wickedness and evil and worldliness and you say, where is God? Why doesn't he do something? Why is he allowing this? Jesus would tell you, you just wait. Jesus is coming again. And he's coming back with justice and righteousness. But you don't have to be afraid if you're a Christian if you have Christ in you. Because you see, there is no atonement, there is no justice, there is no righteousness unless sin is atoned for, and there is no atonement without sacrifice. If you're a Christian today, you don't have to fear the coming judgment. Because you see, the judgment for your sin and my sin as a Christian has already been meted out on Jesus at the cross. 
a sacrifice of like kind. God came in human flesh in order to die for my sin and your sin and the sin of the world. And the full wrath of God in justice and righteousness was poured out on Christ at the cross. If you're a Christian today, you don't have to fear his coming in judgment. But if you're not a Christian today, if you don't have Christ living in you, if you're not trusting him alone as your Lord and Savior, that he alone is your salvation, then you will face the full brunt of his justice and righteousness when he returns, either to get you in your death or in the great and glorious day of his appearing. But I can assure you, as Sheba found out, and as the Gibeonites learned, God forgets nothing. He knows everything that's happened. Justice will be done and will be seen to be done. There will be no place to hide when Jesus comes for that justice. And only those who are spared are those who are now hidden in Christ Jesus by faith because that judgment and that justice has already been meted out. And so you see the situation is easy for us. Invite Christ into our lives today and trust him, the coming king who is about to return. And have our sins cleansed and forgiven and justice meted out at the cross. Or face that judgment on your own. But you can be sure of this. Justice is coming. Righteousness will reign. And nobody gets away with anything for God does not forget. And those who are in Christ Jesus will be set free and live for him forever. This is the choice God is offering. This is what was foreshadowed in the return of David to Jerusalem. This is what the return of Jesus will be like. When Jesus comes back, he will, like David, come from the east. He will, like David, come down the Mount of Olives through the eastern gate into Jerusalem. And the words of Zechariah the prophet will be fulfilled. Zechariah 14, 9. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there'll be one Lord and his name, the only name. You and I are living. You and I are living in the already, but the not yet. Just like the people of Israel were under David. David was already king, but he was not yet fully reigning. He was away, but not yet fully reigning over all of Israel. You and I are living in the already, but the not yet. Jesus is king, but we don't see his reign and rule over all the earth in every way yet. But you will. Because you see, the king is returning. And frankly, I'm looking forward to it. And that's why, that's why the book of Revelation, the whole of God's revelation, closes with these words in Revelation 22. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. And all God's people said. Father, I want to thank you. Uh, Phil and I are leaving so much out of this teaching, it's staggering. But the wonder of your word is its endless depth, allowing us to come back over and over and over with new discoveries of how you are revealed on every page in every situation. 
Jesus, you said in John chapter 5, you diligently study the scriptures. It's these that speak of me. And we are learning to see so much from this that prepares us to know you better. And today, we are grateful to learn that just as David returned as king, one king and one kingdom, so too one day you shall return, one king and one kingdom, to reign in grace and truth, to reign in justice and righteousness from that day on and forevermore. We thank you today, God, for the privilege of being revealed these things, that we may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We may live not in fear or despair, but we may live knowing that while we're in the days of the already but the not yet, we have the promise of Christ that we're forgiven and saved, and we look forward to the great and glorious day of your appearing. Thank you, God, that one day you're coming and taking us to be in the Father's house, and we're going to live with you forever. I thank you, God, for this great truth today. And today, as God's people, we look forward to the return of our King. And we praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen.